It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Wednesday, February 2nd, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. This is the Guy Benson Show, and I am so happy to have each and every one of you here every weekday. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And if you can't listen live as we air, there's a podcast that is always free and available on demand. GuyBensonShow.com. GuyBensonShow.com. It's all right there. On today's program, we have quite an array of topics for you. We have in the next hour a reporter at National Review, Nate Hockman who was at this insane meeting at Georgetown Law School, I believe it was yesterday. They're having a meltdown at Georgetown Law because a conservative professor tweeted something that offended some people. He's apologized. It's never enough. They're demanding firings. They're demanding reparations. This is a prestigious law school. These are allegedly adults. We'll get the details, some of the color on what happened at that meeting. It is it's beyond parody. It's kind of frightening. We will also have in our next hour Howie Kurtz, the host of Media Buzz here at Fox News. He's our in-house media reporter, media critic. And boy, is there a big breaking story today in the media landscape. Not Whoopi Goldberg. Although she's been suspended for two weeks, I think that that's a silly response by ABC, given her apologies. Given some of the ignorant and offensive things said all the time on that show, The View. But maybe we'll get to Whoopi and that issue with Howie Kurtz after we tackle the breaking news today that Jeff Zucker, who is the president at CNN, is now the former president of CNN. He resigned in a statement today, and it comes back to an affair that he was having, a consensual relationship with another top executive at CNN. And apparently they had been having that relationship, a sexual relationship for years. They had known each other for many years, going back across previous gigs, previous networks, back to the NBC days for Jeff Zucker. And what's intriguing about this story, among other things, is not just that there was sort of a scandal here and a salacious story about an affair and they didn't disclose it. And under the regulations of the company, they should have. That's kind of the top level, superficial layer of the story. You dig a little bit deeper and this all comes back, it would appear, to the Cuomo's. Former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo and former CNN primetime anchor Chris Cuomo, the brothers. We'll try to connect some of those dots with Howie Kurtz. But it is an absolute mess over at CNN. The Facts First Network. 
and Howie will get those details to you when we chat with him later. Also, we will bring in Ari Fleischer in our final hour. Ari was sounding the alarm on some of the conflicts of interest brewing at CNN involving the Cuomos and then the top brass and some of the folks involved in this apparent affair months ago. So we'll get his reaction. We'll also talk to Ari about a big bombshell story today that people are discussing involving the Biden administration's utter unpreparedness for what happened in Afghanistan. Some memos, some notes from the White House Situation Room the day before Kabul fell, revealing how totally ill-prepared they were. We'll get to that with Ari coming up. Fox News alert as we begin the show today. Let's bring you statistics on COVID. And more to come on this in just a second. The case count officially all in in the United States. It's a very low count. The real number is much higher. But the official number of documented cases over the course of the pandemic in the United States, 75.2 million. It's down 44 percent, the rise in cases, down 44 percent versus two weeks ago. The death total continues to rise. This is the lagging indicator. Deaths are back above, well above 2,000 per day recently with this Omicron surge that is now receding on cases. The death toll, people dying with or of COVID in the United States, 889,522. The Dow is up at this hour, 194 points at 35,600. And there are 49 minutes to go until the closing bell up on Wall Street will get you that final number in our next hour. So, I mean, there's a lot to get to. Of course, we're going to cover the Zucker story and that breaking news. I did want to start with this because the gaslighting and the historical revisionism is very much underway. I think the American people are increasingly tired of not just COVID, of course we all are, but of officials making decisions for us that are not actually rooted in anything that's going to help. And we've played along dutifully in many cases for a long time. And then the willingness to listen uncritically to some of these people started to drop off. I'd say that drop off happened in earnest last year. And of course, it has bled over into this year. And now I think some of the people who are in control are sensing that control slipping away and they kind of want to make it seem like they were sort of right all along. And here is the example that I want to bring to you. So in New York State, cases in Omicron and COVID cases overall, because Omicron is the dominant variant, have crashed. They have plummeted. We've told you about this now for days. And this was not a surprise. You can go back to our podcast at GuyBensonShow.com or anywhere else. Go back into the archive. And we were looking at what was happening in South Africa and the UK, which were respectively weeks ahead of where we were in this country in terms of the wave, right, in terms of the trajectory. So we saw the curve on cases in those countries, and it was a pretty good, smart informed bet and hypothesis that we would experience a similar curve here. 
once the Omicron variant became dominant here. That is exactly what is happening. And cases that were just through the roof over the holidays, like leading up to Christmas and then just after Christmas and New Year's, record high numbers of cases just exploding everywhere, even people who were vaccinated, even people who had previously had COVID, just breakthrough all over the place. It was a highly contagious but less virulent, thank God, variant of this virus. So it went up, 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 up like a roller coaster, and then boom, we're down the other side. And what the governor of New York, Democrat Kathy Hochul, would like you all to believe is that it was the mitigation restrictions in New York that is responsible for the cases now coming way down. Here's what she put out in a statement. My primary responsibility as governor is to keep New Yorkers safe. Mask regulations keep our schools and businesses safe and open. By the way, it's not true on schools, but going on. They protect vulnerable New Yorkers, and they are critical tools as we work to get through this winter surge. Thanks, this is the key line. Thanks to our efforts, including mask regulations, cases are declining, and we are seeing major progress in the fight against COVID-19. So she is crediting the falling cases to the mask regulations, which is insulting. And you can show a chart to like a drooling baboon and say, baboon, is there a problem? Is there a logical problem with what the governor of New York is trying to sell? And I think the baboon would say, yes, he would nod vigorously. You could have a child who's maybe semi-literate because he's been not in school for a year who, of course, now forcibly masked, and asked the semi-literate child, is there a problem with the logic here? And the child would probably be able to spot it. And when you look at it, so I can't show this to you because it's radio, but I can describe it to you. You look at the graph, you look at the chart on cases in New York, and there's an x-axis and a y-axis. And the date on which Governor Hochul Reinstituted, uh, re reimposed the mask mandate in New York was mid December. It was like between December 6th and December 20th. I'm looking at the dates. I think it was right around mid December. So she puts the mask mandate back in statewide in New York. And the case count, which is the y axis, It's sort of floating along relatively low in November into December. It's slightly elevated into December, starts to go up a little bit. In comes the mask mandate, and almost immediately after the mask mandate arrives, cases explode. And they go up, 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 up for weeks. And then Omicron passes. It basically runs out of people to infect in New York, and then it comes back down the other side. Now, I'm not a hack, and I'm not dishonest, so I'm not going to sit here and say that that graph proves that the mask mandate caused the surge. Of course it didn't. The mask mandate didn't cause the surge, but if you wanted to spin people and point to a graph and make that case, that's kind of what it would look like. Because she implemented the mask mandate and then cases within days started to go up and they truly spiked. Before, as I say, this variant 
burned through the population, ran out of people to infect, and now has crashed as it did elsewhere around the world. But she wants us to believe, which I think is equally stupid and hacktastic as pretending that the mask mandate caused the surge. She wants to pretend that the mask mandate ended the surge, even though the mask mandate started before the surge and clearly did not stop it. Mask requirements in New York were not the factor in what happened here. And it is extraordinary to me that she believes that there are enough gullible dum-dums out there in her state that she can actually attribute this trajectory to masks when the masks started before the spike. Now, just to make the point even clearer, I tweeted about this last night. I went and I found just a couple random states, and I looked at their case count trajectories on COVID right around Omicron, starting in like 2022 and then, or 2021 rather, into 2022. And I posted on my tweet thread four graphs of four states. And there's a few little differences in the Delta surge you can see was different and shaped differently in some of these states. And then every single one of them, the Omicron surge was almost completely identical. They all just boom, went way up at the end of December, mid to late December into January, giant spike. And then they all came down. Four states I focused on and they were at random. You can look at all the other states. It's all the same. It's all roughly exactly the same nearly indistinguishable, nearly identical. And these states, in case you were curious, were California, a state with a statewide mask mandate that the governor, of course, is ignoring and lying about it. We talked about that the last few days. Then Arizona, where there's not a statewide mask mandate. Then New York, where there is, and they're pretending like it made a difference. And Utah, where there was not a statewide mask mandate. The trajectories on Omicron cases are virtually identical in these four states, half of which had the mask mandates, half of which did not. I had a reader send me another example from New England, where you had Massachusetts and Rhode Island. In Massachusetts, the Republican governor, Charlie Baker, decided not to reimpose a mask mandate. He was criticized by some because the science crowd wants mandates. You've got to force everyone to do the thing for science. But in this case, Baker decided not to do it. He just did a mask advisory recommending masks. Whereas in Rhode Island, with a Democratic governor, neighboring state up there in New England, Rhode Island and the Democratic governor said, we're going to have a reimposed partial mask mandate. And then you put the trajectories of their cases right side by side, and you sort of put them on the same XY axis. They are identical. Rhode Island's bump around Delta started sooner. Then it came back down, and they were both exactly in the same spot. And then they both had gigantic spikes in December. In fact, do you care to guess which of the two states had a bigger spike per capita on Omicron cases? It was Rhode Island, the state with the requirement, not Massachusetts, the state without the mandate. And yet you still have people clinging to this idea that mask requirements are essential and that they work and it's anti-science to argue otherwise. And in the case of the New York governor, 
that the mask mandate that did absolutely nothing to prevent the Omicron spike is what deserves credit for the Omicron spike ending. It's just so insulting to our collective intelligence, but this is what they're going to try to pull. They're going to try to say, don't believe any common sense. Our restrictions actually did work. You're welcome. And we're going to fact check that. Because as I said at the top, the revisionism is underway. These people and their mentality have to be defeated. And we defeat it with the truth and with data and with facts, with actual science, not their politicized science. Speaking of which, let's revisit some of their predictions about a red state, the state of Texas. We will do that when we come back on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. And since I was looking into New York and their stats and this ludicrous claim by the governor that their mask mandate is what brought an end to the Omicron surge, I mean, it's, you have to laugh at it. I started thinking and I remembered that we are now approaching almost a year since in the state of Texas, their governor, Republican Greg Abbott, announced that he was ending COVID restrictions, ending, for example, statewide mask mandates. That was almost a year ago. Do you remember what happened? In terms of the reaction, President Biden called it Neanderthal thinking. Beto O'Rourke, who's trying to win the governorship in that state and beat Greg Abbott, he said this was a death warrant for the people of Texas and that Abbott was going to be, quote, killing the people of Texas. That is what they predicted about a year ago. Since then, what have we seen? We've seen a huge Delta wave with a lethal variant. We've seen an extremely contagious, transmissible, less virulent wave in Omicron. And Texas, as of now, has the 29th highest death rate from COVID in the country. 29 out of 50. Better than the national average. And they've had their restrictions gone for about a year. And they were told everyone was going to die. Death warrant. Neanderthal. They're above the national average. They're doing a lot better on death rates and a lot of blue states, including, wait for it, New York. Shouldn't that matter? Shouldn't the hyperbole versus outcomes matter? I think it should. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Roe. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my name is Chad. <laughs> His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson. We continue here on the Guy Benson Show. We were just mentioning New York and Texas. Let's go ahead and talk about Florida as well. Because... I think we all know that Florida has been in the spotlight politically because the governor of Florida is seen as a political threat. Hence, the relentless program and project of demonization of Ron DeSantis 
that we have covered and chronicled and reacted to and fact-checked on this show over and over again. There's a new one out there that we'll, uh, we'll get to here in just a second. But first, I want to draw your attention to a new poll out of Florida. This is from USA Today in Suffolk, and they asked Florida voters about the upcoming midterm elections. And let's just say that things aren't looking great for the Democrats in the state of Florida. President Joe Biden has a 39 percent approval rating in Florida, which is about right. We've seen a few national polls having Biden at 39 percent or so. And Florida is a large, diverse swing state. So it would make sense that his job approval would be roughly as bad there, maybe a little worse than it is nationally. Biden's personal favorability rating is underwater by 11 points in the state of Florida. So what about some head to heads looking at 2022, this election cycle? First of all, on the Senate side, Marco Rubio is up for reelection this year and they've put. Uh, a woman named Val Demings up against him. And right now, Rubio is ahead by eight points in that race. 49, 41. Maybe it'll tighten. Like this thing's going to ebb and flow. But Rubio is a very heavy favorite to win re-election. Being up by eight in Florida is a pretty significant deal. Now, on the governor's side, You've got a few Democrats who would like to be the nominee against Governor DeSantis. You have Charlie Crist, who's the former governor, member of Congress. He ran for Senate and failed. He is this shapeshifter who believes nothing. He has run for statewide office in Florida as a Republican, as an independent, and as a Democrat. And I think for this race, he's got his magic eight ball and he shook it up. What am I going to be today? And it's Democrat. So you've got Charlie Crist means uh, or believes absolutely nothing. Imagine believing so little that you run for statewide office under three different party labels, depending on what you think your personal ambition might be helped by at any given moment. It's actually almost impressive in terms of its sheer cynicism and selfishness. And he's probably going to get. Uh, gerrymandered or redistricted out of existence in his House seat. He's currently a Democrat, so now he's going to run for governor. He trails DeSantis by six points in this poll. Then you've got Nikki Freed, who is the current agriculture secretary, but she's just sort of like one of these Twitter trolls. She's the one who recently compared Ron DeSantis to Hitler, said DeSantis reminds her a lot of Hitler. Maybe she and Whoopi Goldberg can go to remedial history class together or something. But that's what she said. She's supposedly like the leading serious candidate on the Democrat side. She believes every conspiracy theory. She amplifies every nonsense attack on Ron DeSantis, even stuff that gets instantly debunked. She was a hype woman for that crazy person, Rebecca Jones, right? The career criminal who's been out there lying constantly about Florida manipulating the data. It's all untrue. It's all been debunked. But because it was being used as a weapon against DeSantis, Nikki Freed recklessly amplified all of it. I don't know if she ever does her day job. Has she ever done anything about agriculture in Florida? It seems like all she does is sit on Twitter and lob insults at Ron DeSantis. How's that going for her? In this poll, it's DeSantis 51, Nikki Freed 40 
DeSantis up 11. Ron DeSantis is the only statewide or national figure in the state of Florida that in this poll is above 50% on favorability rating. He's plus 10, 52-42. And as I said, he leads his would-be Democratic opponents by a range of 6 to 11 points. So I tell you this not because it's dispositive, not because polling at this stage really matters a lot, although we are in the election year. Right? These are not good signs for the Democrats. I read you these polling numbers mostly just in case there are any members of the media listening, because I'd like to give them a sad. Because they have tried so hard. I know you guys have tried so hard against Ron. I know. And it has to be really, really sad to see the people of Florida not falling for it. Sorry. But that's what's happening so far. And it brings me great joy. Even as someone who is not necessarily in every way, shape or form, a giant Ron DeSantis stan. I like him. I think he's done a good job. I mostly talk about him because of the insane attacks against him. And we'll get to another one here, as I've now teased in just a moment. I do want to say this one thing before we move on from the USA Today poll out of Florida, which, as I mentioned, has Biden at 39 percent approval. He's at 36 percent approval on the economy. So it's, it's not going well. In fact, it's so ugly out there that they did a hypothetical poll in this survey of Democrats. If there were looking ahead to 2024, a primary where Hillary Clinton, where he brought back Crooked H and they had her run for the nomination and there was a primary in Florida, Crooked H would beat Joe Biden by three points in a Democratic primary for president right now. Based on this survey, that's how bad it is out there. For Joe, our esteemed president, there's another 2024 poll that's interesting. They polled what if in Florida, these are Florida voters, what if Donald Trump ran again and Ron DeSantis also ran and they were going head to head? Which one would you prefer be the Republican nominee for president? And it's pretty close. Trump is ahead by single digits. But DeSantis is is hanging in right there. And of course, he needs to get reelected first, but he could maybe build towards something bigger in the state of Florida. I also find the head to head less interesting than this. And this is the last data point that I'll share with you from the poll. They asked Florida voters, again, the largest, most diverse swing state in the country. If in 2024 there was a presidential election and it was Joe Biden on the ballot for the Democrats, Head-to-head against Ron DeSantis or head-to-head against Donald Trump. Who would you vote for? In a rematch, a 2020 rematch in 2024, Trump versus Biden, Trump leads Biden by three points, 47 to 44 percent in Florida right now. Ron DeSantis leads Biden by eight points, 52 to 44 percent right now. Long way to go, very early stages, but I do think that Republican voters need to think about viability in 2024. If Trump decides to run or if he's thinking about running, is he the best person 
to actually have a chance to win. I think Republicans have a chance to win big, potentially, in 2024. I think the candidate that would give them the best chance to do that is who Republican voters ought to be considering. That's a key calculation moving forward. Now, it's clear that the Democrats in the media view DeSantis as a threat, not just in 2022. They're going to try to beat him this year, but based on this and other surveys, that's going to be a heavy lift. It's not guaranteed that he's going to win re-election DeSantis, but, you know, he's in the driver's seat at this point. What they are really scared about is the presidential cycle. If this guy can win, especially if he wins kind of big in the state of Florida and he racks up a bunch of victories and he's the type of candidate that can bring in an appeal to Trumpy Republicans and moderately Trumpy Republicans and Trump skeptical Republicans, if he can sort of coalesce everyone, that's something that they're worried about. And they are not telling us that with their words. They are telling us that with their actions. Attack after smear after lie about Ron DeSantis from the media and the Democrats working as a team, as they so often do. To me, it is very telling. Part of the reason that I have grown fonder of Ron DeSantis, who I don't think I've ever even met, is because of the way they attacked him. They attack him and continue to. The fear is palpable. They are trying to take him out and they're doing it with such silliness and baselessness and hysteria that it has caught my attention, obviously, which is why we talk about it a lot here on the show. I think that performance in terms of, you know, governance, you could cite, for example, keeping Florida schools open last year, big decision. Governance is a feather in Ron DeSantis's cap right now. I would say that if he's able to pull it out, let's say he has a convincing victory in Florida, a crucial state, That would be another feather in his cap, especially if he's weathered the storm of all of these attacks. And then the attacks themselves from the left and from the press and the way that he's responded to them, that to me is another big plus, you know, sort of in the the positive versus negative column when assessing Ron DeSantis as a political actor. Now, here's the latest thing that they're going to try to do with him. Apparently, and it's, it's so dumb. Apparently, there was a group of like neo-Nazi a-hole racists. There were like 11 of them or something. And they went on some overpass in Florida, I think somewhere in central Florida, and they were waving their Nazi flags. Can you imagine being such a loser that you wave the flag of a defeated disgraced genocidal regime like these are just extremely pathetic people representing a disgusting ideology and there's 11 of them for a reason that this is way out there on the fringe so they were doing some hateful nonsense on an overpass people saw it there were i guess some flyers had been distributed at some point and people were obviously and correctly upset about nazis doing nazi things Because I think almost everyone can agree Nazis sort of like uh, along with like hardcore communists, those would be sort of the epitomes of evil that inflicted misery on humanity and killed millions of people. It's just awful. 
doing anything in the name of that type of regime to me is horrendous and also sort of baffling. It's just like very sad loser people who are engaged in this stuff. And so this became a scandal because it happened in Florida. And it's like, well, why isn't Ron DeSantis out there denouncing this? So that became the drumbeat. Ron DeSantis won't denounce Nazis. Like, are you kidding? I don't think even Nikki Freed, even though she compares him to Hitler, I don't think even Nikki Freed believes that Ron DeSantis is interested in, like, winking at Nazis. But this is how desperate they are. So that's what they said. That's been one of the narratives, and it's been all over, you know, hashtagging and left-wing Twitter and that whole echo chamber. And so just to give you a sense of how mainstream this nonsense has gotten, Stephen Colbert, who runs his nightly group therapy for liberals on CBS, on his so-called comedy show last night, he was talking about this, and he made this point in Cut 15. Speaking of the worst people in public office, Florida governor and man describing what Adele's music means to him, Ron DeSantis, over the weekend, horrifically... There were a couple of Nazi rallies in Orlando. I assume they were trying to annex the Sudetenland pavilion at Epcot. (laughs) Now, this is terrible and the easiest thing in the world to condemn unless you're Ron DeSantis, who remains silent. Okay, so he mentions DeSantis and the New York liberal crowd at their therapy session. They all boo together, bad boo. And then what? Colbert alleges is that there has been these Nazi rallies in Florida and DeSantis is silent and won't say anything. That was yesterday on Colbert's show. Problem for Colbert is not only is this not comedy and not funny and totally insipid, it's also factually wrong because the day before on Monday, DeSantis had condemned these people. He called them jackasses. He said they'd be held accountable. He also said he wouldn't play along with the stupid left wing game This answer is part of the reason why I think that he's a skilled politician and popular on the right. Here was DeSantis the day before not being silent about this. So fact check there for Colbert on his comedy show. Cut 16. This was Monday, Governor DeSantis. These people, uh, these Democrats who are trying to use this as some type of political issue to try to smear me as if I had something uh, to do with it, we're not playing their game. You know, some jackasses you know, doing this on the street. First of all, state law enforcement is going to hold them accountable because they were doing stuff on the overpass. Uh, so we're, so they're absolutely going to do that, and they should do that. Uh, but I'm not going to have people try to smear me that belong to a political party that has elevated anti-Semites to the halls of Congress, like Ilhan Omar, that have played footsie with the BDS movement, that even have people in their party that have cavorted with Farrakhan. Yeah, it's like, okay, guys, in your glass houses on anti-Semitism on the left, are you kidding? You're going to try to bootstrap this into an issue where it's totally non-existent? They were doing, I guess, stuff that was illegal up there. They're going to be held accountable. They're jackasses. Then he goes through, not just talking about the problems on the left with anti-Semitism, then he he reflected on and contrasted that with his own record combating anti-Semitism in the state of Florida. Point after point after point. And then he concluded with this, quote, so they tried to play games, talking about the Democrats, to try to politicize. Why would they do that? 
why would they want to elevate half a dozen malcontents and try to make this an issue for political gain? Very good question. I think we all know why. It's gross. He responded to it well. Why would you elevate these people if not to try to pretend that there was a Nazi-related controversy involving a governor that you hate and you're scared of? That's your answer right there. And it's not just some weirdos on Twitter in Florida. It's comedy hosts on national television who are not only unfunny in this circumstance, but just flat wrong, which is lazy to boot. They keep coming after him. He keeps responding. He knows how to fight back, and that's part of the reason why they fear him and why we keep seeing this type of garbage flung in his direction. Batted away pretty effortlessly again by Governor DeSantis. We'll break. We'll come back on The Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. Back on The Guy Benson Show, we've hit a grim milestone in this country. The national debt has now exceeded $30 trillion. $30 trillion and counting. After trillions in emergency spending and more, they want to spend even more amid inflation. I'm someone who cares about the national debt and the unfunded liabilities are even way more. I mean, we're not even getting to those. I cared about it when Obama was president. I cared about it when Trump was president. I care about it now. And neither party is serious about it. The Dems are just delusional about it. Another hour coming up. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A new hour so fresh, so clean on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. That's the podcast. If you can't listen between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern GuyBensonShow.com has the podcast and many other resources about this fine program. We also direct you to our social media, at GuyBensonShow, on Twitter and on Instagram. Fox News alert as we begin the middle hour. The Dow ends the day up in the green, 224 points, closing at 35,629. Joining us later this hour will be Howie Kurtz. We'll have him in studio talking about the big meltdown At CNN, their leader, Jeff Zucker, is out, resigning today. It's about an affair that he did not disclose with a fellow top executive at that network. But the reality goes much deeper than that, and it all comes back to one surname, Cuomo. We'll have those details in a matter of minutes. But first, we're going to cover a story that I think follows a lot of our previous coverage of what's happening in academia, and it very much falls under the category and umbrella of woke tales. Woke tales. And this one's a doozy. From just down the street, from where I sit, Georgetown Law School, they have had a collective mental breakdown, it would seem. And someone who has covered every element of it and was actually present 
for a volatile meeting this week with a bunch of students rending their garments and gnashing their teeth was my next guest. Nate Hawkman is an ISA fellow at National Review. And, Nate, it's good of you to be here. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me, Guy. Okay, so let's start with the basics. For people who are not following this controversy, it's sort of a niche story. It's a very D.C. story. People who are super on Twitter will know what we're talking about, but most other people won't. Who is Ilya Shapiro? What did he do? And why are people freaking out about it? Yeah, so Ilya Shapiro is one of the nation's foremost constitutional law scholars. Um, He's sort of a libertarian-leaning conservative. He was at the Cato Institute beforehand, which is a libertarian think tank. Um, And he was just hired or was supposed to be hired at Georgetown Law to direct their Center for the Constitution. He was going to start on February 1st. But on January 26th, he released a pair of seemingly innocuous tweets criticizing Joe Biden's pledge to nominate a black woman for the Supreme Court. He said she'll always have an asterisk attached next to her name because Biden strictly said that he was going to choose on the basis of race um, and then suggested that another judge would have been better. Uh, And as a result of that, as I'm sure we'll get into, Georgetown Law just had an absolute meltdown. He's being called every single name in the book. The dean of students has released multiple emails now uh, essentially suggesting in so many words that Ilya is a racist for defending the principle of colorblind equality under the law. Um, and now he's been placed on, um, on he's been suspended uh, pending an investigation into the tweets. And that's what we're w- waiting on right now is the final results of that. Mm-hmm. An investigation into the tweets that basically reflected the views of 76 percent of the American people based on an ABC okay. News poll that we talked about on this show on Monday, because the criticism from Ilya Shapiro echoed by many other people, is that discriminating explicitly on the basis of sex and race is not a good thing. And by limiting the potential pool to only a certain skin color and sex, right out of the gate before you even start talking about any individuals or their qualifications, is not the right way to go about this. And he was also making the case for, I guess, a friend of his who's a progressive judge that he felt like would be the best suited for the job. This was a very broadly shared sentiment, I would say, based on the poll that I just cited, a vast majority sentiment in the United States, but not so at Georgetown Law, one of the, uh, at least for now, still elite or prestigious law schools in this country. And people have decided this is all very, very racist. And so he's been, as you mentioned, suspended, even though he hasn't technically even started yet. And they're going to investigate his tweets. Look, uh, Ilya has tweeted, I know him a little bit, He's tweeted for years about constitutional issues and other related controversies. He has not held his opinions close to the vest. He's very out in the open about what he believes. Georgetown, of course, unless they're totally inept, knew all of this. And this is just uh, CYA, right? This is them trying to make it seem like they are just very, very concerned and they're going to do their due diligence now because they have these activist students going crazy. One example that people have noted, Nate— about another professor at Georgetown Law, a female professor, I guess back in 2018, during the Kavanaugh confirmation circus, she had written publicly about her desire to castrate dead male senators during that process because they were defending a rapist, is what she was calling uh, now Justice Kavanaugh. I mean, there's a lot of insanity right there. The castration is quite 
colorful. The dead senators might be seen as uh, very provocative and and maybe over the line. Uh, The rapist allegation, of course, is totally unsubstantiated, but that's what her opinion was. She put it out there. She came under some fire for that. And the administration at Georgetown stood behind her and said, well, this is definitely, uh, you know, potentially offensive free speech, but it's free speech. And these are our values. What exactly is their argument to say that you're protected under the free speech sort of uh, defense if you're talking about castrating dead senators? But if you are simply suggesting that the president is going about a Supreme Court vacancy process and filling that vacancy in a wrongheaded way, that is worthy of a suspension and an investigation. It seems kind of totally indefensible and not reconcilable in my mind. Well, uh, Guy, it is totally indefensible and irreconcilable. And to your question, they don't have an argument, really. I mean, their argument is that Ilya is a racist, he's a bigot, and that therefore he should be canceled. But really, the basis of that argument has nothing to do with Ilya being a racist, which he certainly isn't, and that's been testified to by many people, it's the fact that he's a conservative and that he doesn't toe the party line. And ultimately, all this is is about power. It's just about the exercise of of ideological power. It's about enforcing a particular ideological line at Georgetown. Um, And it is a, a institution. Georgetown is an institution now that is run by radical student activists who basically get their way on everything as long as they cry racist. And the dean Yeah, especially the, Georgetown the, Law. Georgetown Law has had a number right. of these incidents recently. Uh, it's embarrassing. Uh, the adults in the room are not adults. They are cowering, craven, terrified people who are giving in to these whims of the mob that can get whipped up for reasons large and small on a dime. And here we have it uh, in this example just playing out before – our very eyes. Now, I want to ask you about how this all boiled over at this meeting. All right. So I guess some people say it's racist and they're they're deeply disturbed by it. And of course, you know, they're they're harmed because words are violence and this was violence done unto them or you know, whatever their their crazy uh, sort of woke worldview stipulates. And so the dean held some kind of a meeting with some of these students you were in attendance for this meeting. Give us some of the uh, the lowlights of what you witnessed. Right. So I, I was in attendance for a second, and then uh, security kicked me out, so I caught the rest on their live stream. Um, but essentially, what we saw from the the live stream of, of the of the event is a so called sit in with the Black Student Union, uh, where the dean showed up in the auditorium along with two other deans. Um, looking very apologetic, very cowed, very chastened, and basically just apologized for more than an hour. He said that he had let students down, he had betrayed their trust, that he was appalled by you know, the racism of Shapiro defending colorblind equality under the law. And the students, again, because this kind of behavior from the dean just encourages them, they demanded reparations. They demanded that he give them free food to make up for emotional trauma. They demanded that they get a designated place to cry. I mean, again, we're talking about people who are in one of the nation's top law schools, and they're behaving like five-year-olds, and the dean was letting them do it. So was the apology, because the whole point, the way that this game works, is that apologies are never good enough because – Ilya Shapiro himself actually apologized for the tweet, saying 
He had not phrased them artfully. He didn't back away from his point, but he did express some regret about the way he tweeted those points. That, of course, was not good enough because that's the point. The, the, the way that this racket works is you reject apologies and you demand more. So you have the dean of students. He shows up or the dean of the law school. He shows up, prostrates himself before these student activists. He's so sorry. He's betrayed their trust. How exactly? By the way, was it by hiring Shapiro? Was that the betrayal or, or what? Well, that's the implication, right? But again, it's it doesn't – what the truth of the matter is doesn't really matter, right? The point is that you're just supposed to apologize, so it doesn't really right. matter. Right. It's just this, this self-flagellation <laughs> ritual just for the sake of yeah. doing it. So, OK, so you've checked that box, and then the, and then the students, these activists say, OK, uh, duly noted – Apology not accepted. We want reparations. We want free food. By the way, you know, when I was in college, I also wanted free food. I never thought of of going about it this way. So that's maybe points for creativity, although they didn't invent this one. Reparations, free food. And what is this about crying rooms? Yes, there was one point where a student said that as part of a reparations package for the black students that, you know, top 15 law schools in the country, um, they needed a designated place to cry because apparently, you know, the emotional trauma of, of Shapiro's tweets uh, were too much. Again, Guy, I, you know, I just it's, I, it's tough to overemphasize these are the people who are going to be leading the country. You know, if they can't handle a couple bad tweets, I don't know, A, how they're going to take on a hostile jury in the law room, but B, you know, how they're going to handle things like confronting China, you know, climate change, all of the major no, they're, they're not. of our time. No, no, and that's right. not even they're the not, point. Not, and th- these are adults. These aren't 17-year-olds or 19-year-olds or undergrads. These are these are adults who are in law school, one of the top law schools in the country. And I was sort of chuckling at the idea of some of these people like in litigation or in the courtroom in the future, you know, with a, with a judge that they're in front of, objecting like, Your Honor, I request an immediate recess to the crying room. I mean, it's just – it's you want to make fun of it, but it's actually – pretty scary as well. It should be ridiculed, but the madness seems to be winning the day in some of these elite institutions. And the people running those institutions uh, are at the very least prisoner to the whims of these folks, or they're just on board for this radical takeover of these institutions. Last question for you, Nate, and Nate Hockman is my guest, an ISI fellow at National Review covering all of this. You say, and I saw a tweet of yours about this, You've heard from one student who's now under fire who simply spoke up on behalf of other students who are defending Shapiro, saying that they have a right to have their voices heard. Tell us about that student, what's happening to him, and the unusual profile that he cuts who's now being accused of privilege and racism and all the normal things, So you know, the, the usual line of epithets. Right. So it's actually multiple students. I just released the story, another story that I posted right before I I went on here. I'm now hearing about multiple different students who are getting kicked out of not just group chats, but also racial affinity groups as a result of standing up, not not even for Shapiro, but for the basic premise that people should be able to stand up for Shapiro. The one guy that I was tweeting about whose story was particularly tragic, this this gentleman, Rafael Nunez, um, he's a first-generation law student. He's the son of an illegal immigrant. He grew up on welfare and food stamps. Um, and he got accused of being privileged for defending another student's rights to defend Shapiro, got kicked out of group chats, got kicked out of a first-generation law student 
uh, affinity group as a result of just standing up for basic principles of free speech um, and now is being you know, derided as, as someone who is privileged by very wealthy, predominantly white, woke law students. I mean, you simply you can't make it up, but it is a really tragic yep. story for this. For no, this is how it man. works. Right. Here's someone who is a person of color, the son of illegal immigrants who grew up on food stamps, every opposite box you could check on privilege. But because he's standing up for a small L, traditionally liberal value of free speech, free exchange, the right to be heard, you know, due process in this case as well, he is now being told he no longer counts as any of those protected classes. He's out because he's magically privileged because he's quasi siding with a conservative or at least the right of people to defend a conservative. It is absolutely backwards. It is frightening, as I said before. And I think sometimes the solution is to laugh at these people and they deserve to be laughed at. But you also have to worry about, to your point, Nate, are the future leaders of America becoming uh, so blinded by this insanity that our culture is in very, very serious trouble? And I sort of go back and forth. We make fun of it. We make light of it on woke tales, but we also highlight it for a reason. It's not a benign threat. It is a very serious threat. And that's why we appreciate your reporting on this. Nate Hockman at National Review. Thank you very much and keep it going. All right. Thanks so much, Guy. I really appreciate it. You bet. Guy Benson show continues right after this break. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson show. I'm Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson show. A scoop from Washington Post columnist Josh Rogan. He's been on the show, and he reports today that there is a coalition of international athletes from a number of Western nations. It's unclear how many and which nations are going to participate in this, but some number of Olympic athletes from Western countries are going to boycott the opening ceremony at the Olympics on Friday in Beijing. The Olympics, of course, over there begin on February the 4th. We've been talking about it now for months. I think it's just an international disgrace that this regime is being given this PR coup, given everything that they've been involved in, not just in recent decades, but specifically over the last two years where they've been on their worst behavior in so many ways, and yet they get to host the International Olympic Games, the Winter Olympics, I do not plan to watch very much of these Olympic Games for that reason. And part of the argument here is, all right, diplomatic boycott, that's happening. What about a sponsor or a corporate boycott? That's not happening. We've talked about that. A lot of these companies in the West have no real values at all except making money, and they don't want to risk making their profits in the Chinese market, so they're not going to cross China. Deeply disappointing, deeply craven. Then there's the question about an actual boycott of the Olympics itself. That's not happening. And because it's not happening, I very much will be rooting for every American athlete to go there and kick some ass. I'd like to see the medal count rack up and up and up for Team USA. I'd like to hear the Star Spangled Banner played over and over again in Beijing, even if I'm not watching very much of it. Maybe I'll watch it on YouTube or something later. But the biggest sort of PR prestigious showpiece of the Olympics is the opening ceremony. 
And I know Beijing puts a huge amount of effort into it. And I think as many athletes as possible who want to not participate in that, I think that would be a great, courageous thing to do. They can still compete. They can still try to win and represent their country. They do not have to pretend like this is business as usual at the Olympics under this regime. And I hope a lot of athletes participate. This is a great idea. It's the Guy Benson Show. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show, GuyBensonShow.com, podcast free every single day right there at GuyBensonShow.com. And we are very happy to welcome in studio our colleague Howie Kurtz, host of Fox News Channel's Media Buzz every Sunday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. His podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com is Media Buzz Meter, at Howard Kurtz on Twitter. And, Howie, it's kind of a busy day for you, so I'm glad you're making some time for us. You gave me a look when you Borderline said Borderline insane. It's a little bit crazy, but let's begin with the huge media news of the day. It broke kind of midday. Mm-hmm. Jeff Zucker, the leader over at CNN, is out. He's resigned. Let's work backwards. He puts out this statement. Some of the people over at CNN tweeting it out saying we're completely shocked by this. But it seems like this is the final, maybe not final, but one of the final dominoes to fall in a whole string of events, perhaps dating back years. Tell us the story. What do we know? What we know is that Jeff Zucker, by his own account, did something wrong. He had a romantic relationship with a top subordinate, a woman I've known for years, Alison Gallus. She is the executive vice president at CNN, top PR person, chief of marketing. She worked for him when Jeff Zucker ran NBC. He tried to bring her to the Katie Couric daytime show, Annoying Katie, and then he hired her, one of his first hires, at CNN. Now, this is not in any way, shape, or form a form of sexual harassment. This was a consensual relationship. They're both divorced now. People who worked at CNN, including Soledad O'Brien, say it was an open secret for years. And the problem is that neither one, and Allison Gallus has put out her own statement of regret, disclosed it to the upper brass at CNN. So that's only part of the story. And I think there might be some listeners saying, well, you know, should Fox be throwing stones on sexual impropriety issues in the workplace? No, but I would point out that CNN threw a lot of rocks in this direction when there were issues at this network. Here you have the leader of CNN sleeping for years with his top lieutenant at CNN and then before that at NBC as well. That type of thing has to be disclosed. I guess they were both married at some part or a certain time in this affair. Yeah, Zucker, for example, his marriage broke up in 2018. And I don't know that, that there was that kind of relationship when they were at NBC, but clearly it has been for years. They both now acknowledge. And look, I, I tried to make it very clear. Lots of networks, including Fox, had problems with sexual harassment and sexual misconduct. I've reported on those. But this is not a case where unnamed sources are saying this. Zucker is saying, I am leaving because of this. I did something wrong. I should have disclosed it to my bosses, and I didn't. They didn't. And that is at least the reason being given for this resignation. But there's another very interesting angle to all of this, which is the woman in question here, who I guess remains at CNN, at least for now. Zucker's out. She's staying. Before she was working for Zucker and apparently sleeping with Zucker in this media role, what was her previous job, Howie? Drum roll. She worked for Andrew Cuomo, the former governor of New York. And that, of course, came up with the whole... Uh, investigation and uproar over Chris Cuomo's role. And that, in fact, is how this came out by Zucker's own account. In other words, uh, she had, you know, 
been a political person, I guess, before going to CNN. She worked for the Democratic governor. And then— She was doing top comms level for him. Absolutely. I mean, this is somebody senior. who is a senior level, you know, a lot of people would like to hire her. And I've dealt with her for years, and she's a total pro. But when Chris Cuomo got in trouble— after Zucker, by the way, let him do all the, the funny interviews with the governor when, when the pandemic broke out. Right. And when then, things course, were going well for Governor right, Cuomo, they right. were allowed to do the brother thing on the air. Right. And then things went badly for older brother Cuomo, the governor, yeah. on the nursing home deaths, on his own sexual harassment right. stuff. And then all of a sudden the ethics suddenly intervened. Well, and then Chris Cuomo gets caught up in the state attorney general investigation of his brother. And we find out all these texts that he was sending, talking to journalists, trying to spin the story, trying to dig up information right. about he had not, Andrew's accusers. And we talked about this yes. on this show right. when that broke. He had been less than forthcoming with his colleagues and his network right. about the extent to which he, Chris Cuomo, then a CNN primetime anchor, right. had been in helping to protect his brother and sort of working as a rapid response operative, basically, mm-hmm. embedded within CNN on behalf of his brother, the embattled governor of New York. He then goes down because of that. There were allegations at the time. There have been allegations now for months that there is a conflict of interest here if you have one of the top brass at CNN protecting perhaps Andrew Cuomo for a while, certainly protecting Chris Cuomo for a while. She had worked for Governor Cuomo, and you have to wonder, did that past relationship and that loyalty influence decisions being made at the highest levels of CNN, perhaps the highest level of CNN, because that was – her lover, and she was one step below him, him being Zucker in this case. I mean, it's quite a web here. We, we, we need a, an org chart. We do. Uh, yeah, I don't have any evidence that Allison Gullis did anything wrong with regard to Andrew Cuomo, but the fact that it was being investigated and that Jeff Zucker had to make the ethical decision, I mean, at first they kind of poo-pooed it, and then more evidence came out to fire Chris Cuomo, who's still uh, in a legal battle with CNN about how much money he gets. Uh, given all that, uh, it now comes out, and, and it came out for this reason— that Jeff Zucker felt maybe finally uh, compelled to tell his superiors about this relationship with a top subordinate. So, you know, look, Jeff Zucker, uh, I worked for him briefly a decade ago when CNN was a very different network. He has transformed CNN. He turned it into a uh, left-leaning anti-Trump operation that helped the ratings for a while. The ratings are now in a major tailspin just last month, down 75 percent from the previous January because Trump's not around anymore. And the other irony here is that Jeff Zucker had helped make Donald Trump a worldwide household name by creating The Apprentice at NBC. They got into bitter battles once he was president. And guess who waited? today uh, with a statement that would be former President Donald Trump, who called Jeff Zucker a world-class sleazebag. So Matthew Belloni, who's a journalist following this. Yeah, former Hollywood reporter editor. He tweets today, potentially important, I'm told that CNN received a litigation hold letter recently from Chris Cuomo's lawyers demanding, among other things, preservation of all communications between Zucker, Allison Gallist, and Andrew Cuomo. Which would suggest, and again, we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. There's a lot we don't know yet. But there's at least an indication there to me as I try to connect those dots that Chris Cuomo, who's suing the network, he's angry that he was fired the way that he was. He knew this open secret, as Soledad O'Brien, the former CNN employee, says. And I'm now hearing from other folks. In the no, media I'd heard the rumors. And that a it, lot of people. That it was an open secret. Yeah. I had no idea. I'd never heard of her until right, right. The, the Cuomo controversy arose. 
I didn't know anything about an alleged affair, but I guess many others did. Mm -hmm. And maybe one of those many others was Chris Cuomo, who's now saying, I know this thing about you. You're firing me for cause. There is some... You say, I have a conflict. Right. You You have have a conflict. conflict, Yeah. And I'm going to let the world know about it. And I want all of your emails proving it unless we can maybe settle something out of the public eye and I get paid. That at least seems like a hypothesis of what was going on here that may have precipitated this departure of of Zucker recognizing the internal report was going to look damning. He had his former employee dangling this thing over his head like a dark cloud. And maybe he felt finally cornered and had to, quote, come clean because he was running out of room. There was there was nowhere really to go. May well, Zucker may well have calculated, and he's a canny operator, that uh, it was better to get out in front of the story before the story came and he had to react to it. Uh, but I just want to underscore that this leaves CNN without a leader. They just named three interim co-heads uh, at a time when— you Well, they're know, launching this new product, right? Absolutely new uh, streaming service to try to compete with many other networks. And so nobody's really in I charge I right that they now. could call it CNN minus, <laughs> given what just happened today. But, I mean, we, we laugh about it. I think part of this is, speaking on my own behalf, the self-righteousness of the people at that network a lot of the time, the— relentlessness with which they attack our network, for example. It seems like a lot of their folks who cover the media beat do nothing but watch this network and talk about this network all the time. It's not just the media beat people. It's people like Jim Acosta and so forth, and they all hate Fox, and, that, and that's fine. Um, but but the fact this is— This was happening at their own network in yeah. their own house. Mm-hmm. And it seems like that house is very much not in order right now. Yeah, but I've had some people, civilians, so to speak, say to me, well, okay, it was a consensual relationship. What's the big deal? The big deal is the failure to disclose, you know, the cover-up, so to speak. And then both Allison Gollist and Jeff Zucker are acknowledging that they should have. They didn't, and it's come back to bite them, and now Jeff is out. And my guess, and again, I could be wrong, and you can agree or disagree or have a no comment on this, Howie. My guess is if this were just a high-level affair between two top-level executives, and it came out, they could maybe have gotten away with just saying, we're sorry, we should have disclosed, it was always totally consensual, but under the rules, we acknowledge that we should have done things differently. Without Zucker leaving the network, for example, I think it's the Cuomo connection, the blast radius. I mean, this Cuomo scandal is has taken down so many people at CNN. Of course, the governor and his top team. Mm-hmm. You've got people from what the Times Up organization, gay rights organization. One of their leaders went down because a lot of this was revealed. How much behind the scenes, sort of incestuous left wing stuff was going on, and it's now coming out into the open. I think that has to be part of the story here about why he felt like he couldn't just apologize and admit to it. He had to actually go because it's not just a consensual affair. It's various factors surrounding. I think there might be more shoes to drop in whenever this report comes out because well, you then would, I'll, I'll come back on the show and talk you about would it. guess there's going to be some damning stuff in there beyond what we're learning. Mm-hmm. And and is there a sense that Zucker perhaps understood or was pressured even from above that his goose was cooked here? Because he now is embroiled in a multifaceted scandal involving his own conduct, potential conflicts of interest and all of that, plus CNN's ratings are terrible. Like if he was thriving and the network was thriving, things were going well, sometimes success is a way to excuse excuse or at least get past certain issues when you've got the issues plus 
this flailing that the network's right. doing, it seems like it might be the end of the road for several reasons. Well, here. the irony is Jeff Zucker announced a year ago that he would be leaving because Discovery is taking over from Warner Media, CNN. And uh, then that talk kind of faded, even though he had publicly said, I'm out. I bet he wishes now he had stepped down earlier before all this hit the fan. Is the happiest person in the media universe today Whoopi Goldberg? Because Hands we, down. we were going to talk about Whoopi in this two-week what suspension from The View, which I think is silly. I think that she said something that was ignorant and wrong. She apologized, and I don't like this whole punishment thing. But also highly offensive, especially to Jewish people. Of course. Yeah. And I think that she, at least to my eyes, her apology was profuse and pretty abject. Whether she deserved to be reassigned or suspended mm -hmm. for any period of time, perhaps that's a debate to be had. I think it was an overreaction. But she was from the top of the heap in terms of a media scandal to already a, be who? a bygone afterthought because yeah. Jeff Zucker and, and CNN has exploded like the Death Star here. This is a good week for Whoopi Goldberg after starting off as a really bad week for Whoopi Goldberg. Uh, I wouldn't go that far because, you know, when you wade into the Holocaust, and this wasn't just some offhand comment. She doubled and tripled down about how this was not a race issue. We'll tell that to the six million Jews who were exterminated by the Nazis. So this is pretty serious stuff. But I agree with you. I'm not somebody who rushes to the microphone and says, this person should resign and this person should be suspended, especially if you make what appears to be a full and sincere apology. But a lot of people on the right are saying it is an overreaction because they were against cancel culture. The question is, would people on the left, many of whom are kind of excusing the, these uh, offensive words by Whoopi Goldberg, uh, would they be as generous if it was a conservative who, who said they something of not. the same magnitude and you answered the question? They would not. Yeah. And there's no question about that. And I think that that's unfair. There's a certain extent to which I believe that the other side, the pro-cancel culture mob, should have to live by its own rules. Right. But I also wonder, is the way to kind of get past this moment in our society to show more grace to more people. And sometimes that starts with one side seeing someone who's under fire on the, on the other, other side, side and say, let's hold our horses and take yeah. a breath. But that's what happened. And Whoopi said what she said. She has now apologized. And maybe, Howie, we can end on a note of agreement. Unless you really have an excellent, well-informed, historically literate point to make, Maybe the Holocaust is a topic that one should not lightly spout off about. Yes, and yet every single week I'm talking about somebody making Nazi analogies to some domestic political issue. It never ends well, and people ought to learn that lesson. Okay. On that note, I think you have like 17 shows to do tonight. I do. I, because you're a little busy. You're the media you, guy. You can tell by the look on my face. Yeah, but business <laughs> business for you at least is is booming. Here this week, Howie Kurtz, Media Buzz is going to be a doozy this Sunday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, Fox News Channel. Thank you, Howie. Good to see you, Guy. We'll step aside and come right back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. It's the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. Coming up, Ari Fleischer in the next hour. I want to bring you a story that was an Axios scoop. Came out last night. Kevin McCarthy, the Republican House leader, says that he was informed that Speaker Pelosi is thinking seriously about capping the State of the Union address, which is going to be, I believe, March the 1st, which is a Tuesday night upcoming. Biden's going to go to Congress and give his State of the Union. And Pelosi's planning, apparently, to cap the number of House members in attendance physically in the chamber 
at 25. So you'd have a small handful of senators, a tiny handful of House members, I guess a few people in the gallery, and that would be it. Last year, you might recall, it was not technically a State of the Union. It was Biden's first address to Congress because it was his first year starting off his presidency. They had a very small crowd for that. This one potentially could be even smaller. After the Omicron wave in March of 2022, and McCarthy was not happy about this, if I were McCarthy and the Republicans, here's a thought that I had. Because I saw Phil Kirpin, a conservative activist, he tweeted the idea, why not give the response to the State of the Union address to Glenn Youngkin, the newly installed governor of Virginia, just across the river, right, the 12-point red swing from Biden to Youngkin. He's already doing some really good things as governor. He's got a positive agenda. He did the type of thing that Republicans are going to need to do if they want to have a very big November. Give Yunkin the response and have him deliver the speech in Richmond at the House of Delegates. So their version of the House chamber down in Richmond and all the Republicans in Congress, senators, members of Congress, and then maybe some of the state legislators as well, Republicans in Virginia, they could all gather inside the chamber in Virginia and they can mask or not mask as they see fit. And Yunkin can get up in front of a packed house and give a strong rebuttal to President Biden with optics that would really draw a stark contrast. Biden with people in fitted medical masks, a bunch of triple vaxxed people with a tiny crowd limited supposedly due to COVID, even though what politicians are at sporting events and at all these dinners, it's all a charade. It's theater. If that's what the Democrats want to convey to the American people, this is how we view American life in 2022. They can have Biden do his show and then have Yunkin and a packed room do his version. I think that is a juxtaposition that would serve the Republican Party very well and would be useful and instructive to voters. I hope the Republican Party is seriously considering that idea. I think it would be very smart. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up, the happy hour, as I mentioned, with Ari Fleischer. Straight ahead. o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Final hour on this edition of the Guy Benson Show. I am Guy Benson. Thanks so much for listening. Three to six Eastern every weekday. And this final hour each day is the happy hour sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is terrific. We encourage you to try it out if you're 21 plus only. It's expanding across the country. It is delicious. TheLongDrink.com. That's their website. You can see where it's sold near you. You can order online. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. Our website here is GuyBensonShow.com, where the podcast is free on demand 
every single day if you miss any of the program as it airs live. GuyBensonShow.com. Also follow us on social at GuyBensonShow. That's Twitter and Instagram. Joining me now is Ari Fleischer, former White House press secretary, Fox News contributor and president of Fleischer Communications. Ari, great to have you back here. Thanks, Guy. Good to be with you. Before we get to some of the more substantive news, I want to actually start with a subject that we covered in the previous hour with Howie Kurtz, which is this huge bombshell scandal exploding over at CNN. And someone forwarded me an email earlier, Maria, one of our bosses, a little callback, a flashback email to a piece that you were quoted in months ago, last summer, about a potential ethical issue that you identified at CNN in their top brass involving the number two in command at that network, still, I guess, to this day, and her past connections with, at a very high level, Governor Andrew Cuomo in New York, that woman is now central to today's scandal and the high-profile departure of that network's president. seems like, at least on part of this, you were prescient, and CNN's ethical issue has perhaps finally come to a head. Well, I was referring, actually, not to anything involving her, her boss, uh, Jeff Zucker, any, any of CNN's rules about romantic relationships inside the office. I'm not right. concerned about those rules. My issue here was she was <laughs> the top communications person for Governor Cuomo. Right. And when she resigned for Governor Cuomo, she sent a note to him and was publicized by an Albany newspaper saying that I will always be loyal to you and will be always ready and available to help you uh, in, in that sense. And then she becomes in charge of all communications and the number two person at CNN, the same show, of course, that protected the governor's brother. That was the point I was making about that and her, her note to her former boss, the governor, saying she'll always be loyal to him. Um, you have to wonder, you have to scratch your head, did CNN protect the brother for so long? The uh, CNN host, Chris Cuomo, in part because she worked for Governor Cuomo and she was still loyal to him. You're absolutely right, because I went back and I read the piece. You were not alluding to any sort of sexual relationship or impropriety at all. Correct. It was about her relationship with then the governor of New York, and then, of course, the governor's brother was at the time a primetime host at CNN. He is since out for various reasons. Now the boss of CNN and her boss and apparently her lover is out, but her loyalty to Governor Cuomo, I mean, that seems to fuel and feed into, and this was sort of out in the open, this played into some of the criticisms of the kid gloves treatment given to Governor Cuomo at that network because of this strange web of, I would say, conflicts of interest, I think would be one way to put it, at that network involving Cuomo, who was indeed protected by a lot of the media for a very long period of time until it was no longer tenable. CNN, of course, was chief among that crowd with the pom-poms out, for as long as they could do so before they kind of got caught and the thing fell apart. That's, that's exactly it. Why did CNN stand by Chris Cuomo for so long? Why did they allow him to interview his brother for so long? Who at CNN is making these decisions? Well, when you have former Governor Cuomo's top uh, communications person as one of the top people at CNN, and when she put in writing, I will always be loyal to you and I'm available to help you with anything you need, 
you have to scratch your head and say, is this journalism or is this activism for a Cuomo? Yeah. And here we are today. And I know everyone's saying that they're totally, totally stunned. And I guess the rumors are that no one who had knowledge of what was happening over there should be all that stunned. Although perhaps the media team at CNN was too busy hate watching Fox News to notice anything happening in their own company right under their noses. So they're all uh, professing at least to be totally, totally astonished by what's happened. Ari, let's shift to much more important news. This is a scoop that I want to read from. This is Axios, Jonathan Swan. Headline from yesterday, leaked document reveals Biden's Afghan failures. Here's how the story begins. Leaked notes from a White House Situation Room meeting the day before Kabul fell shed new light on how unprepared the Biden administration was to evacuate Afghan nationals who'd helped the United States in its 20-year war against the Taliban. I would add it's not just Afghan nationals. It was U.S. citizens, U.S. permanent legal residents as well. But the story goes on. Hours before the Taliban seized control of Afghanistan's capital on August 15th of last year, senior Biden officials were still discussing and assigning basic actions involved in a mass evacuation. The word immediately peppers the document. It's clear officials were still scrambling to finalize their plans on the afternoon of August 14th. And again, it was the next day that Kabul fell to this terrorist organization. For example, they had just decided they needed to notify local Afghan staff, quote, to begin to register their interest in relocation to the United States, according to the document. Again, one day before everything officially went to hell in Kabul, Afghanistan. And they were still determining that day which countries could possibly serve as transit points for evacuees. Ari, I can't say anyone should be surprised by this, given what we all saw. I know the president said it was an extraordinary success and there was a lot of spin, but the American people witnessed an absolute debacle in Afghanistan. And this document, I think, only underscores the extent to which they had no idea what was coming and were woefully and astoundingly unprepared. Even the day before everything went down the tubes, they were just kind of at that point looking around and saying, gosh, maybe we ought to do something here. You know, to put it in baseball terms, Guy, when, when it's the top of the ninth in a close game and it's the seventh game of the World Series and the opposing team's got bases loaded at a 3-0 count, you don't get your best reliever up in the bullpen at that point. You better have had them ready and able to come into the game a lot faster than that. And that's what they did. They waited too late to take action, to plan action. And this is supposed to be the serious Biden administration with all this experience in foreign policy. They were asleep at the switch. And what was the switch operator saying to the American people at this very time? He had just previously said there's no way that the Taliban are going to take over Afghanistan. The Afghanistan army is too strong. He said Americans could get to the airport. He just kept fooling himself and fooling the American people about events on the ground. And now I think we all know why. The people in charge of seeing what was going on on the ground absolutely did an incompetent job. And who suffered as a result? Our friends our translators, the people who stood by our military through thick and thin, spent blood and soil to jump off of airplanes, to fall out of an airplane engine, to try to be evacuated to safety, because we abandoned them. This is the result of a Biden administration that couldn't plan, couldn't act, and didn't do. 
Yeah, and it wasn't just our allies. It was also some of our citizens. And the president had also said, well, recently, you are exactly right, recently prior to the meltdown had said, oh, no, the Taliban's not going to take over. Don't worry. We've got things planned. It's going to go well. Then, of course, he insisted that it had gone well, which is just sort of wild. No one really believed that. But he had promised we are going to get our people out and we are not going to leave until everyone that we have promised help is out. And, of course, they did not come close to fulfilling that promise at all. That vow was not just broken a little bit. It was shattered into a thousand pieces and thousands of people were left behind and they were scrambling to start to think about evacuations the day before Kabul fell. And this is in their own notes. It's it's pretty extraordinary. It's such a damning indictment, Ari. You talked about incompetence. That was your word. On another front, we addressed this on the show yesterday. I just wonder if you have your thoughts on COVID. You have President Biden campaigning to end the virus, crush the virus, shut it down, get us back to normal. And I find it pretty amazing that it took him 11 months as president to nominate someone to run the FDA. He finally did that in November. It took him almost an entire year just to nominate someone to run the FDA during the pandemic. And then there was this Washington Post piece out a day or two ago clearly planted by the White House, very angry at their health secretary, Javier Becerra, who had no relevant experience in the space at all. He was a lawyer. He was a Democratic congressman and a left-wing lawyer out in California. They put him as health secretary in the middle of a pandemic, and now they have the gall to leak to the Washington Post how disenchanted they are with his job performance. I mean, what did they expect? He wasn't qualified at all, and this was the president's pick. I mean, it just seems like I mean, Afghanistan is one thing, and and clearly that has been seared into the minds of the American people as a huge signpost on incompetence. But on the number one issue that Biden campaigned on, if you can say that he campaigned on an issue, it was COVID. And here we had no FDA nominee for 11 months and a health secretary who apparently is kind of MIA, not doing the job and was never qualified in the first place. I mean, this has to all be on the president and his inner circle, right? So much of this takes me back to what Robert Gates, the former Secretary of Defense, at the end of the Bush years and the beginning of the Obama years, a very bipartisan man, one of the graybeards of Washington, a highly regarded, really soft-spoken, nonpartisan man. What he wrote about the vice president that he observed during the Obama years when he was at Secretary of Defense, and he said there's never been an issue of foreign policy that Joe Biden's judgment did not get wrong. And I think he can apply the same thing to domestic policy. There is no difference in judgment between foreign and domestic. It's how you think. It's whether you're prepared. It's whether you act with preparation, if you're competent, or you're just flailing. Are you botching the assignments that you get? And this is what Afghanistan did, Guy. Afghanistan was the event that opened up the eyes of independents and Democrats and the media to the fact that Joe Biden was botching a lot. And then you look at COVID. You look at what you just talked about. Presidents can nominate on day one. Every president does it. The Secretary of Defense, the Secretary of State are almost always nominated on January 20th, right after noon, as soon as the president's hands comes down from taking that oath of office. With Joe Biden emphasizing everything he did on COVID and trying to pin everything, including every death, on Donald Trump, 
Yes, you would have thought that Joe Biden would have come in on day one and had the best, the rightest, most expert Secretary of Health and Human Services. He'd have been ready on day one to nominate the person to oversee and run the agency that approves drugs. He didn't do any of these things. Guy, I just think when history is written about Joe Biden, people are going to say they dramatically got him wrong. He was not the congenial, pleasant, happy competent, experienced person we thought he was, they're going to realize he's really essentially just the plagiarist he was when he first ran for president and never got much better since then. Yeah, he was seen as the safe pick and is not feeling too safe. And that brings me to my last question, and it applies to the president's press secretary. Of course, that was a position that you held under Bush 43. Jen Psaki, we've played the soundbite here on the show a few different times already. She went on one of these left-wing podcasts in recent days and was kind of sneering at Fox News for being in a weird bubble on crime and talking about the consequences of soft-on-crime policies, and she kind of laughed. What does that even mean? And with all due respect, it seems from where I sit like she is the one in a bubble when it comes to crime and how the American people are feeling. I just wonder from a communication standpoint what you make of that choice that she made to downplay and sort of dismiss an issue that clearly is having an impact not in necessarily red America, but especially in blue America, in cities including the cities where she lives, where the White House is located, Washington, D.C. Yeah, this reminded me of kind of a follow-on to, if you recall, when the White House chief of staff, Ron Klain, tweeted about inflation was a high-class problem. This is the thinking of people who are out of touch and out to lunch. And on a series of these issues, which if I were the White House, I would start to watch Fox News and realize it's the canary in the coal mine that can protect the White House. The issues that Fox viewers concerned with, which are really right of center viewers, center and center right viewers, crime, bread and butter issues, economic matters, energy, price of gasoline. These are the vital issues that are going to shape the next election. It's not the woke issues. It's not the democracies in peril. It's not the Green New Deal. It's not the issues that animates the left. And unless they wake up and recognize that, they're just going to laugh at the American people who are hurting, who are looking to leaders for solutions on crime, on inflation, on energy. And they're going to have a wake-up call in November, and the American people are going to laugh at the Biden White House. This is what happens when you're out of touch. Ari Fleischer, former White House press secretary, Fox News contributor. He's president of Fleischer Communications with some communications advice for the White House. Maybe watch Fox News. Don't hate Fox News because it could actually help them. But it seems like that ship has sailed. (laughs) It's certainly too late for 2022. We'll see if there's any course correction for 2024. Ari, always appreciate it. Great to talk to you. Thank you, Guy. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. Happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show. So this is sort of an interesting sports-ish story, but I think there's some interesting drama beyond the sports angle. Here in the D.C. area, of course, there is the Washington football franchise in the NFL. For many years, they were the Redskins, and that was deemed inappropriate and offensive, so the Redskins' nickname went away. Then they were the Washington football team for two years. And they've been hyping that they were going to announce their new permanent nickname today. All their social media, 2222. February 2nd, we're going to let you know 
what the name of the franchise is. And then it leaked. It leaked last night in a way that is hilarious. And very simple, actually. Inside their stadium, which is actually in Maryland, they had put up a bunch of graphics indoors with the new nickname plastered everywhere. And some enterprising news crew, I guess, sent the helicopter, right, the news chopper, over to the Washington football team's stadium And they were hovering above the stadium and they had cameras pointed down at such an angle that you could read what the nickname was. So the cover was blown and it was officially announced today, even though the world knew it yesterday, that it is now the Washington Commanders. I don't know. People are dumping all over it. I don't love it. I don't hate it. I don't really care that much about their nickname. People are also saying they hate the new W logo. I think it looks fine. I think it looks kind of cool, the W. Commanders is a little lame. Sounds like a minor league baseball franchise name. But, look, it is what it is. My preference all along was the Washington allegations. I thought that would be the most appropriate. But it leaked like everything in Washington. And now it's the Commanders. It's the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. We'll be right back after this. Get to the chopper. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It is the Guy Benson Show happy hour. GuyBensonShow.com. We started today's program with a few thoughts on a crazy, truly insulting bit of political spin from the governor of New York. Here's part of what I had to say about that exploding their talking points. Listen here. Because she implemented the mask mandate and then cases within days started to go up and they truly spiked. Before, as I say, this variant burned through the population, ran out of people to infect, and now has crashed as it did elsewhere around the world. But she wants us to believe, which I think is equally stupid and hacktastic, as pretending that the mask mandate caused the surge. She wants to pretend that the mask mandate ended the surge, even though the mask mandate started before the surge and clearly did not stop it. Mask requirements in New York were not the factor in what happened here. And it is extraordinary to me that she believes that there are enough gullible dum-dums out there in her state that she can actually attribute this trajectory to masks when the masks started before the spike. Now, just to make the point even clearer, I tweeted about this last night. I went and I found just a couple random states and I looked at their case count trajectories on COVID right around Omicron, starting in like 2022 and then, or 2021 rather, into 2022. And I posted on my tweet thread four graphs of four states. And there's a few little differences in the Delta surge you can see was different and shaped differently in some of these states. And then every single one of them, The Omicron surge was almost completely identical. They all just, boom, went way up at the end of December, mid to late December into January, giant spike, and then they all came down. Four states I focused on, and they were at random. You can look at all the other states. It's all the same. It's all roughly exactly the same, nearly indistinguishable, nearly identical. And these states, in case you were curious, were California, a state with a statewide mask mandate, 
that the governor, of course, is ignoring and lying about it. We talked about that the last few days. Then Arizona, where there's not a statewide mask mandate. Then New York, where there is, and they're pretending like it made a difference. And Utah, where there was not a statewide mask mandate. The trajectories on Omicron cases are virtually identical in these four states, half of which had the mask mandates, half of which did not. I had a reader send me another example from New England, where you had Massachusetts and Rhode Island. In Massachusetts, the Republican governor, Charlie Baker, decided not to reimpose a mask mandate. He was criticized by some because the science crowd wants mandates. You got to force everyone to do the thing for science. But in this case, Baker decided not to do it. He just did a mask advisory recommending masks. Whereas in Rhode Island, with a Democratic governor, neighboring state up there in New England, Rhode Island and the Democratic governor said, we're going to have a reimposed partial mask mandate. And then you put the trajectories of their cases right side by side and you sort of put them on the same X, Y axis. They are identical. Rhode Island's bump around Delta started sooner. Then it came back down and they were both exactly in the same spot. And then they both had gigantic spikes in December. In fact, do you care to guess which of the two states had a bigger spike per capita on Omicron cases? It was Rhode Island, the state with the requirement, not Massachusetts, the state without the mandate. And yet you still have people clinging to this idea that mask requirements are essential and that they work and it's anti-science to argue otherwise. And in the case of the New York governor, that the mask mandate that did absolutely nothing to prevent the Omicron spike is what deserves credit for the Omicron spike ending. It's just so insulting to our collective intelligence, but this is what they're going to try to pull. They're going to try to say, don't believe any common sense. Our restrictions actually did work. You're welcome. And we're going to fact check that. That full monologue and today's entire show available, as always, on demand, totally free of charge to you as soon as this show ends. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, it's the home stretch. It's Groundhog Day. Producer Christine called it Groundhog's Day. I don't really care. I don't understand the fixation with it. I don't even know what the groundhog decided for us. I guess we'll talk about it. When we come back, stay with us. The Guy Benson Show. More next. I've just heard from Staten Island Chuck here at the Staten Island Zoo. He did not see his shadow. We will have an early spring. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show. I guess that's different than the other groundhog here on Groundhog Day. There's one in Staten Island. And I guess the Staten Island groundhog has decided because of shadow-related nonsense that we're going to have an early spring. (laughs) Then you hear the guy announcing it very enthusiastically and then the less enthusiastic reaction from people who are like, I guess we have to be here and we have to do this every year. Play that again. Listen to the guy in the background cheering. I've just heard from Staten Island Chuck here at the Staten Island Zoo. He did not see his shadow. We will have an early spring. Yay. Yay. 
We're adults. Why are we here? Why do we do this every year? What's the point? Where's the other one? What's it called? Pete? Phil? Is that in? Is that somewhere in Pennsylvania somewhere? All right, let's bring in Christian because, of course, she loves this stuff and puts uh, a strong stake in the groundhogs and the weather and the forecasts. Uh, Christine, can you help me here? I thought this was in Pennsylvania, but I guess this is a different groundhog in in New York City. Is this different than the groundhog that Mayor de Blasio killed a few years ago? Help. Okay, so the main one is Puxatawney Phil. That's the guy in Pennsylvania, the one that the Groundhog Day movie is uh, uh, because of. He saw his shadow today. Now that means we've got six more weeks of winter. But what you heard was Staten Island Chuck. Now, Staten Island Chuck a couple of years ago was actually Charlotte. And that's the one de Blasio dropped. And then there was like a whole thing because actually Charlotte died from her injuries and the zoo tried to hide it. <laughs> and then so, so de Blasio, hang on, hang on. I'm just, I'm just trying to keep track here and following the bouncing ball. So you've got Puxatawney Phil who's the main groundhog, which is featured as like the the primary rodent of Groundhog Day, upon which the Bill Murray movie was based. But there's like a knockoff brand in Staten Island that is now Chuck, but used to be Charlotte until Charlotte met the same demise as Carousel, for example, with Bill de Blasio killing the groundhog and you killing the pony. Why do we care about the Staten Island one? Oh, because Staten Island Chuck is he's famous. He 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 bites. He bit uh Bloomberg, Mayor Bloomberg a few times. But listen, there are more groundhogs than just them. Uh there's Milltown Mel and unfortunately he's from New Jersey. He died two days ago. Um so they were not Well able- what does that tell us about the winter? If if the groundhog dies right before mm-hmm. the forecast, does that mean longer winter? Does that mean uh, they just can't, sooner they spring? The, no, they canceled all events. <laughs> it was just completely canceled. Uh, I didn't know this, but in doing my research, Guy, uh, groundhogs only live for about three years, so the turnover rate is pretty high. Um, and also, there is Georgia's General Bo Lee, Ohio's Buckeye Chuck, Raleigh's Sir Walter Wally, Washington, D.C.'s Potomac Phil. Portland's Foo-Foo the Hedgehog, and Connecticut's Scramble the Duck. Now, uh, a majority of them uh, did not see their shadow, so that's good. That means an early spring. Wait, hang on. Stop, 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 stop. Why should we be trusting a hedgehog or a duck? I thought that this was a groundhog thing. Oh, that's just their names. That's just the names of the groundhogs. No, you said it was a hedgehog. You said one of them was a hedgehog and one of them was a duck. Did I just... Oh, oh yeah. Oh, you mean the other ones. Yeah, because yeah. they can... Yeah, I was like, I didn't can... hallucinate that, did I? Yeah, no, they can, they can, they can predict as well. I mean, okay, but, we've, have but we have believe? mixed predictions, right? Yeah. It's like yes, you're flipping yes. around the channels. You've got a couple of the groundhog meteorologists saying longer winter and a few of the other meteorologist groundhog rodents saying, no, no, the spring is coming sooner who are we to believe, Christine? So I always go by Puxatawney Phil. He's my main guy. Why? He's the one I, I, uh, because he's the most famous one. 
and he's the one the movie was made after. So let's just go with it, guy. You are thinking way too much into this. this is just so he's kind of like the, the Al Roker, the Al Roker of Groundhogs, if you will, a very prominent. I mean, perhaps the only other meteorologist even close to that level of prominence is our own Janice Dean, whom I would never compare to any sort of rodent. And I'm also not doing that with Al Roker, just for the record. But <laughs> I just don't. How did this start? Do we have any sense on how this started? Because it just feels and maybe I'm being a grump. You but are. It feels like a played out, ridiculous, stupid tradition that makes no sense and has no bearing on what actually happens. So I just I just don't understand it. I've never understood it. Um, it's just something that it's some sort of tradition that they did that it, it goes back to Germany. Puxitani, Phil, I think they've been doing it for 136 years so far. Um, it's, it's a big deal. They have thousands of people that go to Gobbler's Knob in Puxitani, Pennsylvania. Just stop. To That's, wake- stop it. That's what the name of the place is, Gobbler's Knob? Yeah, I don't know why you're making fun of this. <laughs> to our to our groundhog people out there, I, I apologize on behalf of Guy Benson. I believe, just like Santa, I believe. No, no, don't you dare compare this to Santa. I just feel like I cannot fathom waking up on, what's today, a Wednesday? Waking mm-hmm. up on a Wednesday and saying, today I could go to work or I could take my kids to school. But it's very important that we all hop in the minivan and race down to Gobbler's Knob to see what (laughs) Phil the rodent has to say about a shadow and the length of winter that has no bearing on actual reality. It's just, you know, if that floats your boat, God bless. And clearly for thousands, uh, it does. It just for me, you guys mentioned we were planning the show like, oh, it's Groundhog Day. You called it Groundhog's Day. Although you were right, because it sounds like there are multiple groundhogs with different verdicts based on, I guess, whatever the shadow tradition is, just for the life of me, I do not see the appeal at all. I think it's just a fun tradition. Um, help me out, boys, fellas. Come on. Didn't you, you didn't wake up on Groundhog Day, you know, when you were little and ask your mom, like, oh, what no. is the Groundhog? I, I did. I was always so excited about it. Now, let's uh, be fair. There was one. I think it was Alabama's Birmingham bill. He didn't wake up from his slumber, and they didn't want to bother him. So uh, we don't yeah, know. Is he dead? Sure. No, no, he's sleeping. That's the whole thing. Oh, he, he was just, he was just sleeping, yeah. You're waking the groundhog. The whole tradition is from his slumber. And that's when you he comes out of the tree that he apparently, you know, built for himself a little home and he comes Do out groundhogs and, live in trees well according to puxatani his the inner circle at gobbler's knob they do but i think it's kind of a superficial tree an inner I circle I, no just oh, everything no, about called, this top, no they wear top hats they're called the inner circle they wear top hats Wait, they actually have a they have a title. They call themselves yes. the inner circle. These are adults. Yes. How does one become a member of the inner circle? Oh, I can't tell you that because <laughs> I actually don't know. But uh, oh. they did say that the they're, they're a ruthless street gang. <laughs> they they do say he has a good track record, but um, according to NPR, he's only right thirty nine percent of the time. But the gentleman. So that's the- not a good track record. That's a failing track record. 
You're not making the segment easy. <laughs> no, I'm not because the thing is, I think that I think that this makes sense that I'm not buying any of it and you're defending it because this is the same person here who wants to spend hundreds of dollars to go to a medium, a famous celebrity medium to talk to the dead. Maybe you can talk to uh, Staten Island Chuck or was it Charlotte, the dead one? It doesn't matter. Having already wasted a ton of money at a psychic a few weeks ago who didn't even predict your hospital stay that was happening just a few days later, I just feel like it's very on brand for you to put stake in the weather forecast of a rodent and a shadow considering what you're willing to spend your money on, on like related superstitious BS. Someone woke up on the wrong side of the bed today. No, no, I was woken from my slumber in my tree, Christine, (laughs) and a bunch of people in top hats forced me to go out too early, and this is what happens. I get angry. Would you prefer an armadillo to predict? Because they do that in Texas. I would I would prefer no predictions of any sort, except ones that are based on like actual I don't know, weather forecasts. Can you can you predict that far out? Like is there an almanac somewhere that you could like look it up based on some sort of actual data as opposed to I I, I do I feel like such a buzzkill here. But I don't get it. I don't get like who out there gets joy from this or puts an actual stake in this other than me, other than you. I think I think thousands upon I would say, dare I say millions, dare I say millions. Dan, Hmm. Wyatt, somebody help me out here. Don't you love Groundhog Day? Okay, is Groundhog Day good or dumb? I have just one simple comment. Love the movie. Don't care about the day. Hmm. Fair. Wyatt? Uh, I have to agree with that. Love the movie. Wow. Don't care about the day. Whereas Christine puts a lot of stake in Puxatani Phil, I want to drive a stake through Puxatani oh. Phil. Oh maybe, maybe not through the actual <laughs> animal, but through the tradition. I would be happy. Can I, like, see my shadow and say we will have six years of no Groundhog's Day? To use your term. That's what I would like to do. Can we decree that? Can we just, can we see a shadow and do away with it at least for like half a decade at a time? I just don't know what the inner circle would do with themselves. What would they do? Is it every, is it every February 2nd? Is there some significance to this date? Uh, That's a great question, Guy, that I actually don't have the answer to. So thanks for asking. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. This is some uh, excellent scintillating radio that we've done for the last, what is it, 10 minutes? We're out of time, thank God. And I'm seeing, by the way, that Janice Dean, our colleague, was at this location in Pennsylvania today. What is it called? Gulch something knob? Whatever. She was there, replete and resplendent in groundhog gear. So it can't be all bad. I'm glad that she was making her own sunshine down at the groundhog event. I'm just going to be a killjoy about it. It's my prerogative. Back here tomorrow on The Guy Benson Show. Same time, same place. We'll talk to you then. Have a great night.
I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.